Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome, everybody. I'm excited uh, for today's episode. I've got uh, uh, our guest here who's who's um, got a lot of expertise in marketing, so we should have a really good call. He's a He's achieved 2,133% growth in sales over a four-year period. He's a very results-driven strategic marketing executive, a fractional CMO, marketing strategist, and owner at Berardo Marketing Group. Welcome, Anthony Berardo. How are you? Good, Joseph. It's, uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I love having marketers on the, on the show because uh, uh, we speak the same language and uh, we can get a little geeky at times, but it's, uh, it's also very fun and, and informative for our viewers. So thanks for coming. Yeah, a little geeky is an understatement. I mean, <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I could talk. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. I mean, I could talk on and on about um, just, just, just different strategies, uh, you know, uh, different technologies, just uh, the excitement. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's see let's see where it goes. Let's start with uh, the first question. I like to to begin all of the shows with is is trying to think from a, from your perspective, from your lens. Uh, what's the biggest opportunity that C suites um, might be missing out on today? Well, you know, I I, I think um, a great opportunity that I see, you know, in, in especially in the marketplace that we could be offering brands is. Um, how uh, consumerism looks like now coming out of the pandemic um, and making sure that we're, um, you know, I, I primarily, my experience has a lot been in consumer packaged goods, uh, food and beverage, health and wellness, consumer electronics. Uh, so, you know, there was always this, uh, this, this divide in, in retail for, for brands was uh, their retail sales and their e-commerce sales. Um, but now more than ever, I'm looking at it more holistically. And I, I think, what we saw over the past two and a half years um, during during COVID was these great paradigm shifts in consumerism. Um, and what I what I mean by that is obviously you know at the end of Q1 in 2020 uh, we saw a huge shift into e-commerce. Uh, consumers you know had to do all their shopping you know in, in e-commerce, and e-commerce saw huge huge growth and huge traffic, huge volume. Uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, part of a company that was uh, 100% e-commerce direct to consumer. Um, you know, we saw brands like Peloton, a lot of tech brands booming during this time. Um, and not only that, we saw uh, a shift in consumerism where uh, certain demographics um, like uh, boomers, for example, had to adapt to these new technologies had to adapt you know, into e-commerce. And I, and I think that the, the stat was something like consumers that were uh, 65 and older were like the fastest group of online buyers um, spending like 49% or 50% on the web in 2020, wow. more than they did in 2019. So they, they adapt these technologies. They also adapt the technologies like streaming and, and uh, um, uh, video conferencing um, by necessity. So, um, you know, that was uh, um, uh, like a, a golden age of e-commerce for about a year, year and a half. Then, you know, as the world started slowly opening back up again, and especially in 2022, what we've noticed is that there is, um, you know, e-commerce couldn't maintain the level of volume in 2022 that it had in 2020 and 2021. It was always, always going to be, you know, um, uh, an area of opportunity for brands, uh, for certain. I mean, it's groundbreaking, but um, couldn't sustain that level of volume. And we noticed that more and more people weren't in front of their computers. They're out and about. They're back in stores. They're you know they're they're doing things again. Um, so they're so where I'm seeing brands, you know, now shifting back into retail. But I think the um, CMOs or the CGOs or the CEOs or, or anybody that now realizes this and now we look at it more holistically the 
customer life cycle, the consumer life cycle, like more, more holistically, how do we get retail and e-commerce to commingle, coexist, to understand that we're speaking to the customer um, across both channels? Um, and the brands that adapt to that and are able to build this, you know, omni-channel strategy uh, a lot more holistically, I think are the ones that are going to um, really service their, service their brands and service their companies the best. So how is that different than like, I mean, I remember years ago, the, the term brick and click, like okay. years and years ago, which was this, you know, a similar phenomenon, retailers going online and, and having to have a, you know, a holistic strategy that way. What do you mean now that's different than that? Well, I think there's obviously new technologies that are making it, that we can use that are making it a lot um, more efficient to execute, right? Um, I'm a, a big part of what I, I like to look into is, you know, placing QR codes on packaging in the, mm -hmm. in the retail, in the retail locations, right? This is now, especially since everybody started to go and started going to restaurants um, and using the touchless menus, everybody yeah. knows how to interact with a QR code now, but it's not just a QR code come to the website, you know, how are they handled, right? Where do they land? You want to push subscriptions. So they, somebody purchased a product off retail, you now could get them to the website. You could put subscriptions. Subscriptions are huge, right? Month, that's monthly recurring revenue. Yeah. Um, maybe you have a new technology. I'm working with a brand right now that has a proprietary technology in the ready-to-drink space. Um, it's completely groundbreaking, completely excellent, uh, but we're in this education phase. And, and, and they sell their technology to other brands in the ready-to-drink market. So we're using it almost like Intel, where we're having QR codes on the labels of the cans to explain, all right, how was this drink manufactured and made? Come to the website and learn about it. So there's uh, education for new products, new technologies. You know, if they can interact with the brand, maybe you could push a loyalty program or, um, you know, some type of social media campaign. So I think QR codes are like a really, really um, uh, emerging technology that, that, that could that could that could bridge that or unite that gap between retail and uh, and and, and e-commerce. Uh, there's also technologies that are that boom during the pandemic that uh, are still doing quite well now, right? And there's no better technology that that merges retail with um, e-commerce than Instacart, right? I mean, Instacart right. is basically brick and mortar retail, shop it online and get it delivered. Uh, Amazon Fresh is another one, and and you know. The, the funny thing about Instacart is that I think that in 2020, their revenues tripled, <laughs> right? So the revenues tripled in 2020 because of the pandemic uh, makes sense because people were shopping at home and they were getting all this cash, all this investment, which was great. Um, but then by the end of last year, they weren't seeing the growth that they were seeing for 2020, 2019, but you know, who was really, it was almost impossible, but they were still getting growth. They were at 10% at some point in the year. Then in the third quarter, it went up to 20%. I'll tell you right now, I don't know what they did in Q1 of 2022. I bet you it was still up. Um, but and I'll, and I'll guarantee you that Peloton wishes it had those numbers at the end of last year. So it, it goes to show you that, that this blending of, of, of uh, in the consumer's mind of retail to e-commerce is like more uh, gray than it ever has been. And then there was um, another technology that I, I boomed during the pandemic. I think came, it kind of came down to earth a little bit, but I have, I have a really good feeling about it. And there's these, um, I don't know if you ever heard of cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens. It's where no, I have not. So remember during the pandemic, um, restaurants had to a lot of restaurants had to uh had to shutter and close obviously yeah. these these kitchens came out um where the restaurants would send the recipes to these cloud kitchens that would then make the food and then sell it on delivery apps like uber eats and postmates and things like that and deliver and people would go um purchase it and and and, and pick it up from there so the uh, but, cloud kitchens were just like big industrial kitchens that were making all sorts of different food items from all sorts of different restaurants? Co correct. Wow. But then they also adapted to start selling a lot of food and bed products like um, the juice company I was working at had could have cloud kitchens in LA 
where people could buy individual bottles of juice at the time through Uber Eats if you lived in LA rather than having to order it from us in like packs of like 18, right? Yeah. So it was, a, 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 and then they, they kind of, you know, they were huge in like big news in 2020, 2021 a little bit and started like dying, not dying out because from last I saw, the cloud, the cloud kitchen market in 2019 was valued at over 30 billion, and it was expected to grow to CAGR of 12% over the, the the next like four years. Um, but you really haven't heard about them. But I, I feel like that that's something that might come around again. And then another one, another technology that I think is really going to drive this consumer, uh, this 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 that, that that brands can lean into that. Um, marry this retail to e-commerce is delivery apps like um, Uber, uh, Uber Eats, uh, Postmates, DoorDash. Because now Uber Eats, you can not only get food on there from restaurants, you can get pharmacy, you can get um, alcohol, you can get retail. Like I think Bed Bath and Beyond is on there, so you can do your yeah, shopping. For, you can get you can get anything these days, which is you great. Can get anything. I mean, yeah. so this, you know. It, the, the reason it's different than it was year years ago with brick and click is because of the the disruptive technologies yeah. that are um, coming out and evolving to facilitate this so it's, it's it's much more blended as you as you've been saying it's not one or the other it's it's a blended experience and um, and you see that as kind of the big shift post covid that's, that's the new I, normal I, I think so. And I think that, you know, and, and the more that I talk to brands that um, have a um, retail presence and are looking to grow their direct-to-consumer e-commerce presence, and the more I look at them, and the more like, this is how we could do it. We could use your retail presence to fuel your D2C presence. And then it could also be vice versa. I just got off a call with the company right now. You know, they have to ship frozen. And shipping frozen offers like tremendous logistical nightmares i mean because it, you have to make sure you, you have to get it there in a certain amount of time or else the food will spoil you so that now you're talking about expedited airfare you're talking major costs here so on a direct on, on, an e on their e-commerce website you, they have to, the 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 customer has to hit maybe certain minimums before they qualify for free shipping or even for delivery or else this client is losing money on orders. Yeah. Um, so he he was like, you know, I, I kind of want to drive them to 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 retail. Um, and I was like, no, we can do that. I think the idea here is with these with the new customer is not let's drive them one or the other. We present your message in a way that makes it appealing for them to purchase and makes them want to purchase. But then let's give them the options and they purchase where they're most comfortable. Right. If they want to meet the criteria to get it delivered to their house, that's fine. If they want to go pick it up in the store, we'll send them there. Or, you know, can they be facilitated through a um, th through a, uh, a disruptive app like Uber and get it delivered that way? I mean, there, there's now there's there's a lot of different ways that we could approach it. But I think the idea is. Let's make the messaging so that it is holistic for, 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 for everything and make it so that it's more of an omni-channel strategy and then make the, allow the customer to decide, you know, how they want to, uh, you know, experience the, the purchase process or experience the delivery. It's really fascinating when you think about it. It makes a ton of sense because we've all been through the experience ourselves. Like as consumers, we've all seen it happen and, and, and see the value of it happening. Um, how are, how are board uh, rooms reacting to this, the C-suites, when you talk to people, are, do they, are, they, they, are they getting it? Are they they're understanding it? Or is it, a, is, it, is it a big shift in thinking to get people to start embracing it at the, at the C-level? Completely understanding and excited about it. As a matter of fact, um, three weeks ago, I was at a, a trade show in Anaheim, uh, Expo West. It's an all-natural products trade show, right, um, where ton of great brands are there and you get also you get very some a lot of really innovative brands at this show uh you know because it's a lot of a lot of companies coming out with like the the latest food and beverage products that are plant-based or 100 plant-based which is huge or have functional ingredients in them like adaptogens and things like that so you, 
you get a lot of really innovative brands. And when you go to this tra this trade show, they're all there with their sell sheets for retail, right? How much does a how much does a uh, um, uh, a, a box weigh? What's the size of the box is? How much can they pallet? Could they put on the pallet? It's all about you know they're there for buyers from Whole Foods, Wegmans, you know, all the supermarkets, right? Target, what have you, and that's what they're there for. So when I went there and I was meeting with uh, various CEOs or founders or CMOs or you know COOs and the companies, and I was talking to them about this new paradigm shift to consumerism where it's great. I, you should be getting your retail presence all locked up, but let's talk this could let's talk D to C in this type of holistic messaging to, to really give you an over your brand an overall list. And it was totally receptive. They, they knocked it out. They, they, they were knocked out by it, floored by it. And they, it makes sense to them and they, and they see it. Well, and, and you know, when you out, cause if you outline it, a way that they understand because everybody experienced it during the pandemic, you know, everybody, everybody had to, no one could go to, a, no one could have gone to a store. Yeah. Everybody had to go home, had to, had to, had to, was stuck at home and had to figure out a way to get items to their house. So, uh, so they understand that then they under, and then they understand that they can see that retail's coming back. Um, but e-commerce isn't going away and all these technologies came out that could help us facilitate this messaging to the customer to 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 walk them along the process so they're um extremely not only receptive but excited excited about 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 the prospects and this is great for for brands that are really really um especially ones that are really disruptive that have really great product with you with with great unique selling propositions that make them stand out for the competition that have already a lot of retail locations or in a lot of retail locations like thousands thousands of stores nationwide that want to grow their d to c um you know it's like how do we use that coverage you have in d to in, in 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 retail and brick and mortar to drive your d to c business yeah i can see that as the primary uh, maybe the lower hanging fruit, but how do you do it the opposite way? How do you find a brand that's primarily uh, e-commerce now and have that brand start penetrating some of the more retail shifted uh, buyers? And, and that right there can take a little bit of um, a change of attitude amongst the board because there is, if you're, and I have the experience of dealing with brands that are hundred percent e-commerce um, and they, they can be really, really, uh, skittish about going into retail because going into retail is like almost a whole new business. Yeah, it them. is a whole new business. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you have to really fundamentally change their, their whole way of thinking operationally, the type of staff they have to have on, but you know, it, it, it and, and for, especially in 2020 and 2021, when I was dealing with the brand that was all e-commerce, um, they were really uh, against going into retail. And, and I always said to them, I was like, you know, you really should go into retail because whenever I dealt with brands that were born in e-commerce, but then got into like Best Buy and stores like that, you tend to see if they get good positioning and they have a good product, you tend to see that they get incremental lift from everything. Um, just by being on these on these store shelves, and um, I, I always told them, I was like, I think it's something we should look into. But they but they were like, ah, you know, this is a whole you know thing. Maybe we'll do it in 2022, 2023. I was like, all right, we were really doing well in e-commerce, so I never pushed it. We were getting great growth. Um, but now that you know they really suffered, they had a Peloton effect in the sense that. Once the e-commerce traffic fell because the volume wasn't there, right? They were still getting a great conversion rate. They were still getting a great AOV. They still had a 40% return customer rate. All their KPIs were up very, very healthy, right? They had, I think they had like a four and a half to 5% conversion rate on their web store, but their traffic was down 30%. And it wasn't um, the case of, well, you know, are they not spending enough? No, they were maxed out on the volume of customers they can get for their best broad top of funnel terms. 
It's just that the volume of people searching for those top of the funnel terms dropped because they were benefited during the pandemic of having all this volume out there of searchers. So they, they really were, were, were hampered by this, this, this fact that e-commerce volume just wasn't where it was in 2020 and 2021. And now I am of the belief that if they went into retail back in 2018, 2019, they could have really staved off that lack of e-commerce and made it up in their retail location. Cause they were for, they were at the forefront of their product line um, and others beat them to retail. And then uh, now the, those companies are doing like hundred million dollars a year. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's, it's a little bit of first to market or first mover. If you're, if you're not there, someone's going to be there. So yeah, uh, you'd be think as an e-commerce brand, you need to think about it as soon as you can. Um, and not be afraid. You're going to have to, you know, fortune favors the bold, I guess, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, you're going to have to, it's going to take a lot of work. Obviously going to retail is not easy, but um, I think it's more important now, unless the, we go into another pandemic shutdown, which nobody wants, you know, but, but um, I, I think it's, I think it's important. And uh, if, if you have a product that can, that can get on store shelves, um, I think it should be part of your go-to-market strategy um, at some point in the you know early on. Yeah. How um, how much does pricing have to change in that scenario? Because if it's an initially an all e-commerce, you know they've got. I'm guessing I'm not very familiar with CPG, so these yeah. are some assumptions I have that the pricing model is much different than a retail, and you know you've got the wholesale but i'm just curious if the if the top line consumer price has to go up when you go retail or you just have to accept less margin when you go retail um, or if the cost are the same it's just a different logistical nightmare i don't know i i from what i'm seeing you know um you, you try to you, you try to keep the pricing the same right and from what i'm seeing that way you know they, there's the, the minute you're not you're not map on one thing versus another, you're probably going to see that that one thing that's the minimum advertised price is going to outdo whatever, whichever channel doesn't have it would be my guess. And I, I think from my, from, from my experience is that at retail, you just take that, that um, lesser margin or that lesser profit, you know, that, that, that is like the, the cost of doing business, you know, those, the, the chain is going to take their cut. You're going to have to get it there. You know, you're going to get a loss. If you have a product that doesn't have a shelf life, and it's going to be expired. You're going to take a loss on those once they come off. But I think that that is um, just, uh, you know, you're going to have to fundamentally under, uh, make a night. That's just like almost any other pricing strategy or, or skew strategy. You know, are there certain skews that, are, that, you're, that you're stocking at retail that just aren't making money? And if they're not, then they get killed or you just sell them online. And um, the ones that are profitable, you keep there, right? I mean, I think it's just like anything. It's just like anything else. I mean, you do the same exercise on e-commerce, right? You you look at all your products. What are the ones making profit? You keep. If there's if there's if there's um, products that isn't that aren't profitable, um, unless they're a loss leader, unless they're bringing in new customers. I mean, so much goes into this. Yeah. But I think on yeah. the retail, I think on the retail spot. You know, you um, definitely have to look at that. I'm like, well, if it's not making me money, um, what's the point in having it there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't suggesting you have two different prices. I was just wondering if how often that that is a barrier for. Well, if we have to go retail, our twenty dollar bottle of shampoo is going to have to be twenty five dollars, and that's going to knock us out of all, you know being competitive, or or if it's just no, there's enough margin already. We can go retail. We're going to accept less and it's just a different strategy. And we think it's important and overall we'll have a lift. And so it's, a I, 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 I think it depends on the, the CEO and it depends on the, 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 the owner or the, the founder or whoever's making the decision because some, I, I've dealt with some CEOs that are like uh, that, that, that think, well, it, it costs us too much. The profit's not there. Uh, the profit right. margin not the profit margin is too small. I don't want to go, and some are all right. No, we'll, we'll, we'll let, let's see if we could we, we can make it up in volume or you know overall overall lift. 
right? Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. That's where you want to, you know, that's, a, that's where it becomes a really big sea level decision where you've got yeah. to have everybody weighing in from, from operations to sales to finance, to marketing. Then the marketing guy, I want that brand out there as much as possible. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah. all right, so we'll make a 20% margin on this as opposed to 40, but I think it's benefiting us long-term just having the brand out there, you know? Yeah, how do you have those questions? So let's not shift in complete gears, but long-term versus short-term uh, in the C-suite, when it comes to marketing and branding, you know, those are, they're always kind of at pull and push, yin and yang. We need sales now, but we need to position ourselves long-term. Like, how do you navigate those conversations or lead those conversations? And so I think that in my experience, that's a matter of knowing your audience or who you're dealing with more than anything, right? Because I've dealt with CEOs that um, are more short-term and are just looking at the, you know, what's this campaign going to do for me now? Whereas, you know, I was just a part of a rebrand, right? Now, a rebrand, I mean, you're not going to see the effects of that for months and months and months and months. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long-term play. So, um, and I was going to be dealing with a CEO that didn't have the patience for that. And yeah. lo and behold, they, you know, didn't have the patience for it. And we're like three <laughs> months in, like, where's the, where, where are the results from this? And I was like, well, this, that's not... That's not the, 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 the point here is more of a long-term strategy on this. Um, so I, I think it's about, you know, setting expectations, right? And, yeah. and, and you know, a CEO is going to want, um, every, they're going to, they, 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 they always want things, right? But that's the, the nature of, of, especially if they came, especially if they were a CEO that was born as a entrepreneur from their own, um, their own product or their own service, right? That, they're, 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 they have an, uh, they, they have a personality of, of constantly uh, of new ideas, right. Which is great, you know, and it's always like, Hey, you know, how about this? And I think it's like, you got to take that and like, just let, set the expectations and say, that is going to, you know, might take a little bit longer. It's a great idea, but we have to understand that, that, you know, that's a longer term strategy or a longer term play rather than something that we're going to see um, immediate immediate uh return on you know in a, in a way um e-commerce uh and a lot of what we do especially you know over the last 20 years really spoiled a lot of people in, in the sense that you know uh now I, I my whole career has been online right i i i graduated college in 99 and I went right into an advertising agency that was starting a, a web department. Back then, all we were doing was building websites. This was like the, yep. the internet boom, right? Where the yeah. internet bubble, where it was just like getting. There were traditionally an ad agency that was a you know print a print ad agency that was just like had clients that were like, we want to get a website, and it was like, all right, but you're just putting you're just building websites. No one knew how to monetize off the right. internet at that time. Yeah, just, but, but um, not to digress, but, um, you know, I, I would think that what, what e-commerce did was spoil uh, people and, and make a, a, a shorter expectation on the marketing life cycle because we were able, with, with e-commerce and with certain campaigns like paid search, paid social, I mean, you get instant reporting, right? instant traffic reporting, instant sales reporting, instant revenue reporting, right? So you could like literally optimize and make changes on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But you think about before e-commerce, um, and this is before my time, but I can just guess by watching something like Mad Men, you know, they put out like massive campaigns and you probably didn't know if that moved the needle yeah. for months and months and months and months. With e-commerce, you can make you know, decisions on a, on a dime. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And especially in the consumer goods market, you know, B2B yeah. is a little less spoiled because it still takes a long time to see some results from some of those digital campaigns. Um, although, you know, you think you throw an AdWords up and you should be able to generate leads pretty quickly. 
uh, that, that maybe that's that's similar, I guess. That, that you, you, you know what? I think that the the, the network technology uh, is starting to catch up to B two B because you know there's this. Um, do you ever you, you, you know the company the ad serving company AdRoll? Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've been around forever. I mean, that was what Facebook was using to serve ads before Ads Manager came came around. And their network is powered by this um, AI called NextRoll. And NextRoll, and I just, I just heard about this like two or three months ago, and I've been looking into it. So now they're using the AI NextRoll to facilitate a new ad platform called RollWorks, which is primarily dedicated to finding and building personas around B2B contacts and B2B, you know, so you can serve ads. They're, they're, they're saying that next rule can now serve ads to people based on their, uh, you know, um, their roles, their functions, their jobs. So you could like build out these personas and, and, and now serve ads to people um, for B2B advertising. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that wild? So they're I haven't, serving, used, it they're serving, I haven't they're, used it yet. They're serving them on the same channels. They're just being able to target by role, essentially. By role, yeah. Persona, role persona. I haven't used it yet. I'm gonna. I have one client. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try it with. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, to do I, <laughs> definitely. It is fascinating how much data there is on all of us as individuals. Our our digital footprint has thousands of little pixels to it. A friend of mine is uh, works at one of the large, large, large data uh, mining companies. And he says that you can go completely off grid, get rid of credit cards, not log into a computer, you know, completely off grid. And then you could pop up on the other side of the country and just start doing your routine email checking, surfing, you know, anonymously, not obviously log it in and just by the pattern of what you look like or what you look at or when you wake up they know who you are like yeah. that yeah anonymously it's it's, it's, it's scary it's scary. scary did you see that face that netflix documentary with the facebook um no i didn't watch that it's a good one it was a good yeah. one because they had they had the actual uh engineers from facebook like the guy who developed the like button and stuff like that right oh yeah and they were talking quite candidly about it. But, you know, I, I've always said, I've been saying this for like 10 years, and I know this is going to sound contrarian to what I do, but I think it's because I'm behind the curtain. If I wasn't doing what I was doing and, or the day I retire, I'm going to be pulling all my social media off. I'm going to be completely, yeah. I'm going to be done. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have it. I, yeah. I mean, it does, you know, it, I, I know this is another thing I've always said. I was like, you know, this, I love the internet. I really do. I think the internet is the greatest, one of the, one of the single greatest uh, mankind moments or achievements ever. I mean, it's on kin with, it's in, it's on kin with almost the discovery of fire. I mean, that's how much it made the world such a small place, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the communication aspects of it. I mean, this is amazing, but um leave it to mankind and to humans to absolutely ruin it with like, <laughs> like social media <laughs> yeah. social media was a beautiful thing i was i was my, i'm a first generation italian my my parents are from italy um and i still have uh, half my cousins first cousins my dad still has his house there you know prior to uh, 2000 or so um communication with them was like very 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 rare rare thing you know, it was only like on a phone, you know, once Facebook came about, I can communicate with them all the time now, which is amazing. Right. And it's things like that, that will like that make social media and the, and, the, and the internet such an amazing, amazing thing. But at the same time, you see, you know, other, uh, other stuff that it's done. It's, 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 it's it, the, the data mining and, and stuff. It's, but we, and I feel hypocritical because I use it. I use it what? to, for, for, for my customers and my clients. Yeah. Well, it was also, it was a great connector. Now it's a great divider. And that's, that's, that's right. Kind of the unfortunate thing is it took all the filters off of us, took all the humanity away from us. And everybody feels like they are now there to criticize, to, you know, propagandize, do whatever they want. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I wonder if it, that pendulum comes back. You know, it's just it's 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 just an ongoing thing. Does it feel like it can though? That's a scary part. I think it can. I I, I really do. I think just like anything, there's a there's going to be a swing back. I I feel like that now. Maybe I'm wrong, but my kids are you know are are my kids have only grown up in this negative environment of social. You know, they didn't see the yeah. good stuff when. Twitter first came out. It was like, Hey, I met my new best friend. Let's do a tweet up for lunch. Um, But they're going to get to a point where they're sick of it. Like I'm not doing that anymore. Like, and and it's just going to push it back the other way. And there's, I think there's going to be some maybe societal norms that come out. I just don't think we can continue at this level of divisiveness forever. You you make an excellent point with that. Right. Because if you look at, you know, your, your children, or even like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure what their, their ages are, but generation Z, which grew up, you know, completely digital, right? No analog. So they were born into this. So maybe they're, because they were born into it, it's such a natural for them that they won't handle it the way we handled it, our generations, because we were right. given this, right? Yeah. So we didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> like, and like, you know, we just like, it's like giving a, it's like, it's like giving monkey fire, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't do that, but you know, if you grew up with fire the whole time, you know how to handle it. So yeah. maybe you're right. Maybe that's what swings it back. Me and you might be, you know, might have shuffled off for a mortal, mortal coil before that happens. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It's, but we'll it's see. Crazy. I want to shift gears again. Um, yeah. So you're a fractional CMO. Yeah. What, what is it like? Uh, you know, what do you think of the differences between a fractional CMO versus a full-time CMO to, to maybe other audiences that don't understand that. What, how would you describe the differences? Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm finding myself having to describe the fractional C-suite all the time when people see, see how, you know, how I'm positioned. Um, so I, is it to, to describe it to just to anybody? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the way I see it is, um, we offer and we allow brands that are at a, are at a, at a certain level um, that need to um, move up to um, to another level the ability to um, tap into the experience of executives and professionals that um, have a track record of accomplishments of working with brands to get them to where they need to go, but you know, they might not um, be able to afford to bring in that person full time. And um, it's like, it's like a contract temporary hire, which, which might go permanent. But I, to me, I feel like there's this, like this, um, I, I think that there's a sweet spot of if you're a brand that um, is looking for go from startup to mid market, or you're even just at this point where you're making maybe 10 to 15 million, 15 million annually, you might not be able to afford to bring in a full-time CMO just yet, depending on, it depends on how you're structured, depends on what you do, it depends on what your profit margins are, it depends on a lot. But in order to make, because in order for a brand to, to really experience growth, to continue growing, um, they need to tap into the expertise of individuals that can help them do that, right? And um I think as a fractional CMO, I allow brands to tap into that type of talent where I can come in, um, you know, run their marketing department with, you know, the experience of PL ownership and developing a complete um, from the top down. I mean, it might have to start all the way, you know, I'm going in and uh, they're, they're, they're bringing me in. They're like, we really need help with our digital marketing strategy, you know, to try and grow. And I get in there and I'm like, actually, we got to go back. We got to go to the top because your whole brand architecture and brand messaging is off. And, you know, I can't do a digital marketing strategy with improper brand architecture and messaging because it flows top down. So we have to go up. So it's like someone coming in, like they never realized that. And it happens a lot. And I have to come in and totally, um, you know, restructure everything. And then they don't have a marketing budget. They don't have, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of things and it's, it's, it's getting them situated and getting them and getting them set up so that they're, they're operating the department in a proper way so that they could now grow. Um, now 
if I'm successful, chances are that they might want to bring that. <laughs> Sometimes you're a victim of your own success. If you're yeah. successful, they might be like, all right, we might want to bring that in full time now. Either, you know, they'll, they'll might offer me the job that happened at my last stop and went from consultant to, you know, hire. Um, or I, I don't know. I, I kind of missed working with a lot of different brands though. Um, yeah. A lot of different clients. So. Yeah. But if you, if you, if you are successful, you are creating some sort of full-time role. It may not be a full, what I've discovered is it may not be a full-time CMO role, but it might be a full-time like marketing manager or, or head of marketing that can execute on the stuff that you've built because yeah. it may be a lesser strategic focus moving forward. Yeah. Um, but that means you're out of a job, which yeah. is okay. And, and that's a part of the fractional world is you're, you're giving employee employers that option to bring somebody kind of as needed without making that long-term uh, and full-time cost uh, uh, commitment to a person for that role. Uh, and as a fractional professional, you're working with multiple clients typically. So you don't have all your eggs in one basket. So you can be a little more objective uh, and you can kind of be more fluid from one client to the next. For sure. And um, I'm telling you, I, I, I really noticed uh, over the last, lately, I, I don't know, I would say over the last six months or so, that the fractional messaging, um, it, it seems like it's across the entire C-suite at this point. It's not just for CMO. Yeah. It's really, really resonating with yeah. brands and companies yep. more than ever. And um, it, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite exciting. It actually. is exciting. So yeah. one of the things I like to uh, ask uh, fractional professionals is what, what advice would you give a, a C-suite for how to hire and what to look for? What, what are the right characteristics to look for in a fractional uh, C-suite executive, whether it's a CMO or otherwise? What, what do you think are the, the major criteria, top three criteria they should look for? I mean, it's going to sound... Um like pretty much on the nose, but I think the first one is obviously you're going to have to look at accomplishments, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you have to have a track record of success, right? Uh, I like to see a track record of success. Um, I, I think the best fractionals to me at one point were working and had a success on staff at a brand, um, and I mean, I don't know how, how you would stand on that, but I stand, you know, your stance on that, but because I think in order to really be able to do it for multiple brands and, and understand how, how, how it works, I think you had to have done it somewhere one time, uh, for one brand. And now you took those tools and now you can take them to do them for, now you know what it looks like to do it and you can do it for multiples. Right. I, I, I don't know, because as a fractional CMO, it, it's more than just building up a digital marketing strategy. It's literally I, I it's running the it's running the marketing department. I'm stepping in mm -hmm. to run your entire department. You have to have run a department in order to um, to do that. Right. And if you just came from an agency, you never really did that, because if you just have agency experience, you have agency, you have experience doing very specific things. And then it was just handing it off to a client and then they yeah. were doing their own thing. Right. So I, I think that that, I think uh, having a, a track record of accomplishments is one, um, two would be having done it for at, at, on staff at a company is another one. And then the third one I think is most important. You, you gotta be, um, you gotta make sure that they're some, somehow organized through project management, project management skills or mm -hmm. because there's a lot is there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. A lot of moving parts. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Um, well, and you're doing a lot of testing and a lot of trials and a lot of vendors and a lot of internal work. It's just, it's, it's a lot in marketing that has to go on that most people don't understand the complexity anymore of marketing. It's so much more complex than it used to be. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, when you're working with multiple clients, oh, yeah. it, it's like, it's you know, you deal, you, you, you've been working here, you know, you're, you're, you're focused here. The next thing you know, you got to go and you got you to, it's like you're totally shifting to another, another, you know, different, not only a different project, a whole different brand, you know, it's like they had their own problems and it's like, uh, wow, that, that takes, but I kind of, I don't know. I find that, I also find that fun. You know, I kind of got bored a little bit working on staff. 
after a while. Yeah, I tell I tell people, or what I've heard, I should say, from other people is that um, it's important to have a someone with a full time fractional mindset. And what I mean by that is they're in the fractional business to build a business to stay in it, and they're not looking for their next gig. And sometimes the offer will come, but but I think the best fractional leader is one that is there long-term as a fractional and they've figured out how to work with multiple clients, how to yeah. bring value quickly, how to, they've developed the processes that work really well to deliver yeah. the service. Um, but somebody, and the, and the other reason is there are a lot of people that are out of work that are calling themselves fractional just to get the full-time job. And that could be a good transition for the right person. But it's, if you're looking for that true fractional service, you don't want somebody who just got, you know, tired of their last gig and is now out on their own and pretend and, and it's not that they couldn't do a good job it's just it's a different mindset so you i think it's important that someone full-time committed to the fractional lifestyle is yeah. a major criteria for for a c-suite to consider hiring a true oh, fraction that's a great great point that would be number four <laughs> yeah well and then the fifth i'll tell you my fifth and this is uh the biggest of all of them it's cultural fit and i've seen more uh, you know, engagements uh, go bad and heard more horror stories about engagements go bad. Everything else could be right, but man, there's just a, not a fit. You know, it could be a personality conflict with the, between the CMO and uh, the CEO and different CEOs. Like you said, if you're a, if that CEO is a short term, I need results right away. And that's CMO or CTO or CFO is I'm a visionary. I'm a big picture thinker, you know, that falls, uh, falls apart pretty quickly. So having a real cultural core value kind of vision fit is super, super important. hundred percent. I agree with that, you know, uh, uh, wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to, I, I, I like to take a long-term, I mean, I like to take, yeah, I like to take a long-term approach uh, and vision to uh, what I'm doing. Um, fortunately, it seems like a lot of CEOs and brand owners out there are, you know, they, they really need, they, they like to see the results. So you try to marry the two, you know, and the one good thing about e-commerce is there are things we can do to see instant, like, yeah. you know, instant gratification. And then you, you, you know, you um, marry that with the, the, the long-term, the long-term benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, other questions I like to ask, just get various inputs from um, as a leader, as a fractional leader, what do you think are some of the um, inherent traits of a good leader? Maybe not, a, you know, of yourself, but you think about other leaders that you look up to and, and have, have experienced. What are some of those characteristics or traits? Um, you know, I, a big, big one that I, that I, I pride myself on that had big impacts on me as I was coming along in my career with um, individuals that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of right now that had, impacted um, how I how I developed and how I grew. And what I try to do um, as a leader is uh, mentoring um, my staff. I'm big on um, their growth is, is I, I take great pride in, in, um, in, in, in making sure that they have a path forward or they see a path forward. There's a growth plan for them as well. And uh, that I try to um, mentor and, and, and impart my knowledge um, to them so that they can, you know, grow, grow in their careers themselves. And um, collaboration, I'm a big, big collaborator, right? And I think that those two go hand, go hand in hand. So when I'm running uh, staff meetings, um, you know, I, I like to make sure that everybody's voice is heard, right? And that uh, everybody has, everybody feels that they are, um, you know, part of what's going on and that they have, um, that they have a voice and that, and that, you know, what their contribution and their contributions matter. And, um, you know, so within the meetings and the collaborations, um, there's also the idea that when, you know, we're, we're looking at, analytics or we're looking at reports or we're looking at how campaigns did or, or, or whatever the, 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 the purpose of that meeting is. And I see 
um, I can make heads or tails out of the analytics to make a decision. I like to show them and, ex and explain like, you know, what went behind that. And, you know, and I think that that is, that that's, that that's big time for me in leadership. Um, those two things are definitely mentoring and collaboration or, 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 you know, what I was brought up with and um, what I like to instill. Yeah, those are great. Yep. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. It's a, it's, and we think about the opposite of that, uh, the, a, a, a person that's uh, given a, a, a role of um, leadership, but doesn't mentor those around him or her, or doesn't collaborate, you know, it, it doesn't last long in a leadership position. No, it just well, doesn't work. It, it doesn't. And, and the opposite, I mean, I've seen owners, um, of brands that basically just want a staff of button pushers. Yeah. You know, and just to do what they want done. And you have this, you have this tremendously talented individual and under you that, you know, I, I, and I love when my staff instill on me or show me something or make a suggestion that I didn't think of. Right. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm like, I love that idea. You yeah. know, let's go with that. That makes me feel great, you know? And then, and you know, you learn from them as well, you know, mm -hmm. because every, you know, if, if, if you just, if you surround yourself with, I like to surround myself with smart, intelligent people that are really, you know, highly effective and highly functional in what they do and um they're young they're eager they're hungry they love the brand they love where they work um and they just want to you know participate and um and 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 you know and, and do the best job they possibly can and when they and when they share great ideas there's there's nothing that makes me happier than, than that and then and then i follow their careers on linkedin and i see that they're that they're moving on and they'll, they'll like or they'll be like yeah i'm moving on i got another position you know to step up and like, that's great and you see them growing i mean that's that's that is so fantastic um to me and i and, and i and i love seeing that and, and the people that just want to hire button pushers just to just to enact their own vision um i mean yeah those aren't leaders those are you know and they, they're they're not they're not going anywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that is the opposite. You know, I've too, I, I'm sad to say that I've seen that happen time and time again. Oh yeah. We all have, I think, in our, if, if you've had any amount of time in corporate America or business, you've come across good and bad leaders. Yeah. 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 So I, and I like to, you know, um, and I, and I, and, and I think it's, you know, it, it's not just even, leaders of staff it's um it's i think there's also a trait of how you treat your your partners your colleagues and your um your equals in a sense that i, I over this over the, the the entirety of my career you know i've nurtured and made relationships with vendors agencies partners um that to this day i have tr great great um uh, working relationships with, and we still to this day execute on a lot of a lot of great, um, terrific campaigns um, to success. And you know, it's amazing that whenever I need them or I need, need to tap into my network, because I've, I've you don't burn these bridges and you and you nurture these relationships and you create and you you, you mentor people and and you treat people the right way through leadership and through partnership. Um, they're always there for you, you know, yep. <laughs> and it, it, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's your net, your built your network of of support and uh, connections for for everything you need moving forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that that's a, that's a point of a part of leadership as well. That good leadership that comes with that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you like to do for fun, Anthony? Oh, wow. Um, so I live on the Jersey coast. So I like the beach. Um, I'm a, I'm a big beach guy. I like, to, uh, I like to go fishing, um, love, um, all forms of entertainment, whether it's like movies, concerts, music shows, 
Um, I'm big into that. I am a lifelong comic book nerd. So I have a extensive um, vintage comic book and collectible collection that I've been curating for years. (laughs) So that's a a hobby. That's a hobby of mine. Uh, Marvel, mostly I'm a big Marvel guy. Um, And, uh, you know, my family and and friends and just um, a big family guy, big friends guy, uh, love getting together, love cooking, a big cooker. I like to cook. Um, Yeah. Oh, and I regularly, I work out every day. I, I do exercise every day. I'm, I'm into big, I'm, I'm very much into my health. How did you get into the comic book uh, collectibles? So when I was a kid, I don't know, I might've been like 10 years old. I remember I was uh, sick um, home from school and not a fake sick. I was legitimate, like, you know, fever type illness. And then my mom came home and she bought me four comic books uh, she brought me a Spider-Man, a Hawkman, um, a G.I. Joe, and I can't remember the fourth, a Batman. And um, that was it. I just collected comics really ever since then. Oh, and wow. then I just, I just loved them. Um, and, you know, there was like, I, I think that, you know, people have a... Um, a misrepresentation of, of, of comic books, especially Marvel comic books. They're actually very, very well written, very, very creative. I mean, they have um, Marvel comics, especially thanks to Stan Lee. You know, he created very complex characters. I mean, you have like guys like, you know, if you think about it um, back in the, in, in the early 60s when Spider-Man came out, before then, DC comics were all about like, you know, uh, Superman, Batman, just like this, good these these guys just fighting crime and you know all these the, the, all, not really deep stories but then marvel came about and stan lee was creating characters that were uh, that were flawed in many ways and really resembled real life and it was like you know you had spider-man who this young kid he's a nerd gets bit by a spider gets these superpowers right what does he do he doesn't go fight crime he decides, oh, I want to go and make money off of this. So he goes and starts wrestling and making money to buy a car to impress some girl. Um, you know, he lets this burglar go by because he didn't want to be bothered with him. This burglar ends up killing his his, his, his uncle. And then fr- from there, he realizes that he needs to do good with these powers. But he didn't go into fighting crime. This was a, con- this was a, a, a kid that was emotionally flawed at the heart of it and has ever since then been trying to, um, you know, has been trying to, to correct that mistake. And I, and, and I think that when you look at it at that level, the, the characterization is of these, of these characters and how they were developed and how they were built over time is quite creative and um, is really, really deep. And then there was in, in recent times in the last 10 years or so, the, the writing of these books has been actually quite revolutionary, right? You have these, these, these guys that write these books. I believe the, the gentleman who wrote, who wrote Batman at one point, this guy, this gentleman, his name is Scott Snyder. He was actually like the, the lead, the, the head creative writing professor at, um, at NYU and Carn and, and uh, Sarah Lawrence. Right. I mean, you, you, you get these guys, they're like, you know, our age or younger and they, grew up with comic books and these are guys that were supremely supremely talented writers who probably could have went into writing novels or writing different forms of media but they love comic books so much that they took their tremendous creative writing skills and wrote for comic books and um i you know you you're seeing some really really great storylines and, and and really great independent books that you know, almost every movie and television series you see now is based off of some comic book and like the walking dead and, and uh, all these different, these different ones that are coming out um, that are coming out to some like major acclaim. Um, And that's because of these, 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 these guys that, you know, I I truly believe if it wasn't comic books, we'd be writing novels and decide that we're going to write for this different media. And it's, it's really creative stuff. That's 
That's fair. It's fascinating. That's really interesting. I, I've not been a uh, you know, consumer of comic books. So to hear you just share that story uh, makes me want to go buy a, uh, a few of my own. Uh, I, so, could recommend, I could recommend some to you. I mean, yeah. the, the, the writing on them is, is, is really, really tremendous. It's like the, um, well, it's like the, it's like the writing you see on these different like Netflix shows. Right. I mean, you have like, think about the TV we used to watch back in the eighties. It was good, but it was nothing like these guys are writing. <laughs> like yeah. they're writing. They're writing now. I mean, these are some tremendously talented individuals. What are your top two or three comic books now? Uh, I've always loved Spider-Man. He's my favorite. And he it, it's really, really good stuff. Um, outside of the superhero stuff, because that, that's being written, there's this one comic book called Saga that is like Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. It's okay. that. It's like, it's like yeah. that. And it's really, really good. Um, and uh, the second one, the third one that I'm, that, that I would recommend besides Saga or some Spider-Man stories that are that have come out recently that have been tremendous um, would be, oh, let me think. That's that's a good one. What is, they actually just made a, store, a, a television series about it on FX right now. It's called Why the Last Man, which is, um, is pretty interesting. It, it has to do with um, this, this guy wakes up one day and he, is, him and his male monkey are the last living beings on the planet with the Y chromosome, and it's oh, just, geez. yeah, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's uh, just a uh, a tale that of, uh, of 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 what happened and him trying to navigate this this world, being the last man, and you know, like he they you, he's got to hide himself because him being the last man would drive like would, 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 would draw it make society go crazy because there's no men left. Wow. Yeah. That sounds interesting. It is. Well, I mean, it, it is pretty interesting. Yeah. The, uh, the one uh, there's, there's one comic book. I, I don't know. I'm assuming it was a comic book at one time. Uh, Loki is a character in the, the, the whatever shows they're on. Yeah, um, I remember. Is it, is it that? Is he the one that has the multiverse like experience on, on the one of the, t- the TV shows? He did. He just went through the his series went through the multiverse. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a like an aha moment when I was thinking about um, how visionary entrepreneurs think about things. Um, as a visionary myself, and knowing a lot of visionaries, you kind of can see the future. In your own head, like crystal clear, this is where we're headed. You might know a lot of CEOs that are like this, like this is where we're going. Yeah. And I can see it clearly. And sometimes here's the problem. You get so attached to that one vision that to hell the high water, we're all going here and you're not listening to people or you're not collaborating or you can get just so fixated. I had this aha when I saw that a multiverse show with Loki and like, holy cow, there's actually a multiple array of visions that really are out there. And a true visionary thinker can start not just seeing one, but can see dozens or hundreds. And then that realization for me personally, and I've shared with other visionaries, is it takes that laser focus off a vision and it widens it and allows you to make some moves and changes along the way. And you can be much more accepting and uh, not attached to a specific uh, outcome and take the path that uh, that comes to you. And as a business owner, I found that to be a super eye-opening realization for myself. And it all came from that that movie uh, and, and the multiverse concept. Yep. That's that is an excellent take. That is an excellent take. See, I'm telling you, comic books are very inspiring. Yeah, they were. It was, <laughs> it's like, and I I share that story often uh, for anybody yeah, who's seen one. that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. I'm surprised you watched that series, the Loki one. Well, it's the kids. So other oh, kids, you know, yeah. Over COVID, like they were going through, like, all right, let's do Star Wars from the beginning. Let's do the Marvel series from the beginning. Let's do yeah. and so we just yeah, I watched them with them. It was fun. I, yeah. I enjoyed I enjoy that stuff. Uh, I mean, know. they did a they did a tremendous job. That was the the gentleman who runs the MC, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kevin Feige. I mean, that guy was a visionary of what he built over um the last 
I guess it's like 12 to 13 years now with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how it's all interconnected and they did a fantastic job. I oh, mean, it's, it is, it is uh, really, when you, when you step back and look at it, it's, it's pretty amazing what they've done with that, that series uh, and connect, how everything like there's little Easter eggs all over the place. Oh my God. Of it. It's just, it's amazing. The, <laughs> the amount of like thought thinking uh, brain power that would, uh, yeah. like I, I think he, he has on his wall in his office. He has like, he's like five years out yeah. on, on everything and, and connecting it all, you know? Yeah. And then, and then they built um, the, the writers and, and the, the, the writers of those series of those movies, they curate them. Right. So they'll take a lot of them from the comic book, from the, from the Marvel comics. Then they put them through like a, their own, like, I'm not, it's not like a school, but it's like a system of writing. So they curate the writers in a right. specific way for those movies, for the screenplays. I mean, that's like uh, on another level of, of development. It's very impressive. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciated our conversation today. It was fun to end on, uh, on this, this topic. Uh, but uh, I think everything we talked about was pretty informative. Uh, and thank you for your time. Oh, yeah, it was, it was great. I had a great time. Uh, anytime, I'll, you know, uh, you want to talk, I'm, I'm here. Good. And then if people want to reach out to you, I think that we talked the best way is uh, LinkedIn. Is that right? Yeah, you could just do uh, go right to LinkedIn, Anthony Berardo. Um, I'm not sure how many there are of me there, but it's... Uh, you know, the, the end would be uh, A. Berardo, B-E-R-A-R-D-O. Yeah, and we'll have their details in the show notes uh, with some other ways to contact you, but LinkedIn's the preferred. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, well, thanks for everybody out there listening. I hope you uh, picked up a couple uh, thoughts and maybe go grab a, a comic book uh, and uh, share what you think with us later. Thanks. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at fractionalcsuiteretreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at yorcmo.com, yourcmo.com, spelled wrong on purpose.